Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Health and Wealth Power Hour. I am your host, Harlan Pickett. We're going to talk about health care today. Health care. Wow, what a crazy subject. Who would have thought that Harlan would be talking about health care? But we have a longtime veteran that has been battling the health care system for 40 plus years. We are extremely excited to have him with us today because he has some super valuable and unique insights on how we got here and what we can do to change things. I would very, very much like to welcome Greg Vigdor to the stage with us today. Welcome aboard the Health and Wealth Power Hour, sir. Thanks, Harlan. Love your show and uh, keep the good work. Let's have a good show here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Hey, I was very intrigued as I was able to look into kind of what your background is. You've done a few different things. You've you've been in the middle of the fight, uh, sometimes quietly, sometimes loudly, but you've been in it for a long time. Uh, even, interestingly enough, even back so far when people didn't think there was a problem, but you could see at the time that there really was. So tell us a little bit about that journey, buddy. Yes, well, it really starts with I stumbled into healthcare because my dad was a dietitian at a hospital in a pretty big hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, of all places. And so I just started volunteering when I was like five years old and, you know, holiday meals, I'd help serve the, the staff. But I, and I just ended up getting part-time jobs in the hospital and I just sort of fell into healthcare opportunities and um, as a young man, I was sort of casting about for what I might do with my life. And I had some more opportunities pop up, like becoming the storeroom supervisor. I'm going like, well, this is kind of interesting. It's a good place to work. And and then, but the more I started looking at uh, what was going on in the system, the more, more I realized there was something that was not right in River City about how it really worked. The real discovery in this was when I was, of all things, uh, promoted to be uh, a nursing administrator. Uh, not because I had a clinical background, because I didn't, but because I knew something about business and and logistics and supplies. And that was a problem in the nursing department. They wanted somebody who wasn't a nurse to come in and try to help get things straight. And so I did that, and I learned a lot about how nursing works and patient care works. But as part of that, I started talking to the, the hospital CEO and other administrators and other staff around physicians. And that's when I started to realize this system is really crazy. And really started to get this bug to say, well, I want to understand it better, maybe try to hum somehow make it work better, because it doesn't seem like at its heart, it's really working as best it could. The The major reason I reached that conclusion was, I was 22 years old at the time, it was all a very strange experience. But one of the things they did was they made me administrator on call. So in the off hours, there would be one administrative person who would have this beeper. And uh, you'd, get, you'd get wrong if something crazy and bad happened. And, uh, and then I started ending with a regular beeper and part of the nursing department for what people called up when something weird happened. It went off all the time. <laughs> and the stories that I got were just frightening. Um, I remember one, there was somebody on an operating room table that needed a part and it hadn't come in yet. And I had to figure out how to go find it within an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that oh was what really captivated the the there's something I've got to we've got to get more involved in here and try to solve it. And then I had an opportunity to go to law school in D.C., not become a lawyer, but because I was starting to realize that a lot of this seemed to evolve around our nation's capital and policies at the national level. And I said, well, what a great way to be able to go learn that. 
So I went to law school. I actually worked full time while I was going to law school because I found a law firm that specialized in exactly these questions about the healthcare system for a myriad of clients from the National League for Nursing to the Mayo and Cleveland Clinics uh, to the American College of Cardiology, Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. So a really rich array of clients where I got to see the problems they and their um, associates were having with dealing with the healthcare system. And then they got this marvelous education again into how the system works at that level. And But it was very similar to my nursing experience, which was, it was like, holy crap, how did all this stuff happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that sort of ended up, long story short, turning into a career where after my law school experience, I ended up in a whole host of positions that were really about trying to unravel healthcare and make it better for people. The theme really became how do you reform the American healthcare system, a system that's trying to do so much good and has so many resources and does amazing things on an everyday basis, almost miraculous things, but as a system is beyond comprehension and certainly is not functioning as a true system the way we want it to at any level, from cost to quality to access to consumer experiences, you name it, it really falls dramatically short, especially in terms of the resources we put into it. And that's where my adventure really just took on a number of different opportunities, great opportunities to try and do better and proud of a lot of what we did. Some of it worked, but it certainly didn't fix it. That problem remains. I'm now semi-retired, but um, my semi part of this is what I decided to do was, well, whatever's on left, maybe I can address it by um, helping to educate people about the problems. So, again, long story short, what I'm doing now is I am writing novels, uh, fictional, entertaining medical detective stories that are intended to be very entertaining, but embedded within are, them are real lessons of American health policy, how it got that way, simply written, uh, along with some array of solutions. And also, as I've now written now two novels, I'm getting into more uh, specific permutations of what's going on in this area or that area. Again, all trying to educate people because my conclusion from my experience is if we're really going to fix it, we really need to have a broad-based public understanding and support for whatever the solution will be. It's embedded in American policy and politics. And in order to reach beyond the special interests and the other forces that would say, let's not change it, you're really going to have to get a groundswell of support from the public. But the public really isn't educated in the problems. They're, they're very educated in the problems with the system because we all have a story to tell. Or if we don't, we soon will about our experience with the system and how it kind of was not what we expected and too often uh, in a bad way. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, you, you look and see how much health co healthcare costs have just grown over the last, especially 20 years. It's been unbelievable, so much so that, of course, we're spending four and a half trillion dollars a year now. It, it's, you know, 20 percent of our economy. But one of the more interesting takes on this I heard recently says, you know, if we fixed everything today, just imagine we fixed all that because a quarter of that, a quarter of that 4.5 is just waste. Right. That's just waste. There's no reason it should be spent. Many times it's it's either missed billing or paying for things that never got done or overpayments, whatever it is, doesn't matter. It, it's waste. Then you have a lot of administration. OK, about a quarter, another quarter of that is administration. So only half of that four point five is actually spent on health care. It's also kind of difficult to wade through and actually say, is that a value? Was that quality? What, what was the real price going to be? Because we certainly don't know the price of any of these things. But this commentator's take on this was if we fixed everything today, fixed everything, if we could snap our fingers and fix the healthcare system to run properly, our economy would collapse. <laughs> because it would go from, say, four and a half trillion dollars to maybe a trillion dollars where it should be. And then all of a sudden, where is that extra three and a half? It would put multiple businesses, including insurance companies and you know, hospital systems, things out of business. It would absolutely devastate our economy if we fixed it. I said, what a novel concept. Think about that. We've got it's got to continue at some level to run inefficiently and bloated 
because it's so ingrained in our health, in our in our economy now, we wouldn't know what to do if it was fixed. What is your what is your thoughts on that? Because I think that's a very I, I certainly am still trying to process that. But what do you think about that? Having been involved in this for so many years, I think it's accurate. There was a time early on when I thought had the other thinking, but the more I did it, the more I saw just how fast different sectors are growing and the power and influence of those sectors where you start to get to, well, you're not going to change it for political reasons without a major groundswell, but there's also this thing of the the strongest policy argument they usually had was, well, if you do this, I'm going to, our whatever local business reason is going to collapse. And um, a hospital leaving a community, for example, well, there's really good studies that say that's exactly what's going to happen. And I think as it's gotten more endemic with the types of things you're talking about, insurance costs and all the, our transition from a manufacturing to a service economy, I think it's accurate. Um, What maybe makes it a little easier for me, when I think about it, I go, well, I remember when we used to talk about somehow taking these costs and redirecting them. And I finally realized that, well, the best we're ever going to do is to slow down the the humongous increases that we're seeing. Um, and if, when you frame it that way, then it's, well, now that you're, maybe the economy won't be growing as fast as it was in that sector. And maybe that's a more palatable way to approach the the notion of solving these problems without bankrupting our national economy. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think it's a it's an interesting dynamic that we have created by letting this just grow out of control, and in a very real way, just accept it as this is just what happens, right? Um, it's a it's not, in my opinion, good, but it it is yeah you know, the old saying it is what it is, but yes. it's it's reminiscent to me of exactly what we see in the employer group space where they seem willing to accept these annual increases from their insurance company because they've always been told there's nothing you can do about that. That's just right. what's going to happen. It's it just every right. year it's going to go up. Just hope for an 8% or 5% increase instead of a 15. Uh, right. You know, just, just put it in your budget and accept it. And they have, as a general rule, they have accepted they, they that. Have. And you think about how many people get their insurance there. And this is another problem, of course, insurance and healthcare are two different things, but we've been brainwashed to believe they're the same. So people believe they're getting their healthcare through their employer. And I have no choice, but to keep going down this path. Yeah. As you have seen these interactions, because working in hospitals and working in some of these foundations that you did talk about, the experience that you've had there and seeing some of the different players and how, you know, in other words, the, your experience and how we got here, right? How did we get here through the different players that are involved in this? Well, the, the most frustrating part when you start talking about players is that my experience in my 40 plus years of work in the healthcare system was that almost everybody I dealt with were smart, talented and committed people trying to do the right thing and frustrated of being in a system where doing that didn't seem to matter because a lot of bad things happened and it was really hard to find the good path for them to be on again because of the system and right. so this is what i write about in my books it's just how we got here historically um and so that's a whole different question than what you asked me um what i found was that a lot of people are sort of in their boxes that they're in and the structure of the system just reinforces that. Uh, the one thing I would say that I've seen over my career develop since I was in Washington, D.C. for a while early on was at one time it wasn't as protected by special interests. Okay. I used to go to the healthcare lobbyist meetings, even as a law clerk for this firm, and the room would be you know 30 or 40 people. If you tried to do it now, you'd have to rent out a convention center. Because there's probably thousands of lobbyists for each specific little piece of the healthcare system, preserving their piece of it from their point of view. And I think that's the behavior I saw more and more as my career developed is the the fiefdoms, if I can use that word, around the different pieces of the system really reinforced as professional subsets and said, well, you can change the system. Just don't mess with my part of the world. (laughs) 
And, and that is a formula for what we have, which is not much change and things just continuing to accelerate in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think that's proven out multiple times when we see certain laws that have been passed that finally get through and they have little impact, right? They they may have started out in the drafting process <laughs> to, to have really had some, some good teeth into it, to have had a lot behind it that was going to make a difference. But the final result, the final law that was passed made very little difference, had very little impact. Uh, and in many cases, unfortunately, had the opposite impact of them what it was because there was unintended consequences. Uh, you know, obviously Obamacare is a great example of a law that may have had good intentions, but has caused a myriad problems uh, throughout the healthcare industry. And it certainly had a big impact on the increase of the cost of health insurance, has had a big impact in, on the cost of health care. Uh, it's, it's it's not a it certainly is has not provided what the folks that wrote it i believe they i believe they actually had some good intentions but it did it is not done what they wanted it to do and they're even coming out now right even the some of the politicians right. on on the side that wanted the thing are saying hey yeah it's not doing what we wanted it to how can we have this hugely soaring cost the numbers show it has not perform the way that we hoped for yeah yeah so, so what i say i know on your show you have a lot of examples of what i would call practices disruptors people right. who are engaged in different things that are trying to disrupt where the industry is going through from that basis well there are also these things called policy disruptors and uh and it's not just how things get watered down but there's resistance to some of those concepts in the legislative and regulatory arena and with the affordable care act i was actually quite involved in that okay. uh, quietly behind the scenes and we actually proposed a number of what i would call policy disruptors and and those people were on the same side of trying to make things better but it scared them off because they were just too disruptive to the notion of really big an uncontrollable change. So they were really surprised. They just rejected our ideas out of hand because it was just too much to fathom. They couldn't control the pace of the innovation and exactly what they wanted it to be. And like your private practice disruptors, the notion of disruptors is, well, you really can't control them. You can just sort of set up loose and see what happens and hope that the change is for the better and, and good chance it will be. But same idea. Yeah, it's for the folks who are listening and don't know what medical loss ratio is as far as applied to insurance companies. One of the things that that did is it limited how much profit an insurance company could make. They had to put, depending on the type of plan, they had to either put 80 or 85% towards the claims payment. And then anything else they had was for everything else, paying commissions, paying administrative costs, and your profit all had to be in there. Well, the negative side of that is that if I only can make 15% above paying claims, then the only way that I can make more money is if I raise my, my premiums so that I'm making, so that there's more money, right? Which would you have, what would you rather have 15% of? A hundred million or a billion, right? What, that, that's a pretty easy math. I mean, I, I'm not the greatest mathematician, but I can, I know 15% of a billion is more than 15% of a hundred million. So this is, once again, I believe that it was put in there with good intentions, but right. the results of it were that insurance companies actually make more money if the cost of healthcare goes up, which is, right. Right. it's, it, it's the reverse of what you think it should be, right? I, they should be my fiduciary. They should be helping me. They should want to keep those costs down. So it's kind of a, a weird conundrum then that you're like, but aren't you my friend? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so to give you the example, the policy disruptor specific one we suggested at the top of our list was, well, the United States doesn't have any national health goals. So why don't we say that Congress will set up a set of national health goals. They can figure out what they are. But we said, one of them should be around the cost of healthcare. And this whole notion of how fast it's going, why don't we just say explicitly, pick your number, 2%, 3%. Please don't pick 10% or 12% like I had been, but right. pick a reasonable number and say, that's the goal. 
And we're going to hold ourselves accountable to that, not just as politicians, but in terms of system payments. If we don't, if it's 3% and it comes in at 3.5, well, there's some mechanism to start to pull money back. So we really are able to set this thing on a pace that is manageable long-term as a system. They went screaming out of the room as we suggested this idea. And it's still <laughs> number one on my list when people ask me, what would you do if you were king for a day? That's it. <laughs> if if you limit how much it can go up, then you've limited how much it can go up. I mean, that's that's really that simple. And things that's, will change. <laughs> yeah. It goes back to the old saying, the only way to pay less for health care is to pay less for health care. Uh, that, that's really it. That's that's the only way you can possibly do it. And that's that's been lost, right? The, the whole concept of being able to control this, that's in a, a policy system, like what you're talking about, that's that's an answer. That that is definitely an answer. But I can see them running out of the room screaming whenever that was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't want to have to worry <laughs> about that kind of thing. Wow, wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. <laughs> what are uh, what are some of the other policy uh, disruptive policies that you guys, uh, w- if it would have been included, could have had some impact on this? That would obviously is a huge one. Um. So another major theme, not just in the Affordable Care Act conversation, but a lot of this was my work with the uh, Washington Health Foundation, a not-for-profit based in Washington State, where we were trying to improve health, as was our passion, still is. We still exist, although without much money. But one of the major innovations we were on, from a practical point of view and a system point of view, was what we called, um, we called it health homes, or, but really what it is, it's people-centered health policy that the problem with the American healthcare system is the fragmentation and the organization around all these pieces as opposed to the patient or real people. And that there, there are ways to rethink that from not only policy, but just how people engage in the system. And there's ways to give people tools to help them get there. But there are also ways to think about the design of the system in this other more common sense order. And so we did suggest some things that would help sort of drive that movement. One of the ideas was we'll create a design institute for patient-centered care. You know, start to give something with some intellectual teeth that will allow innovations like some of the ones you've had on your show to to grow and foster and develop in terms of their conceptual underpinnings to say, well, how would a policy solution reinforce the things that are working and maybe take care of the things that we're seeing that aren't working the way we would like them to work? So that was another bigger theme, a little much more esoteric, a little more requires a little more thought. But again, as far as driving change, we thought and still think that's the key to the change is making the system organized around the patient and the person and their family in these smaller units rather than these aggregate big systems that are getting bigger and bigger and more unwieldy. No, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent, as I, I, I know that you believe that I would there because patient-centric care, that's just a no-brainer, right? I mean, why why are we so, we are so built around catering to the big guys, the insurance companies and the hospitals and all the other ones that we have lost focus of who we should be catering to, and that is the patient themselves. And even in the United States, one of the things that we do not give enough credit to is primary care. We simply do not focus enough on primary care. If we did, we wouldn't have such a problem with chronic conditions. It, it's a huge driver of our healthcare cost because we have so many chronic con- condition issues. And making little changes like what you're talking about there, that's part of making it you know, patient-centric. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there that are building health plans now for employers, uh, us as one of them, that are patient-centric. It's amazing what happens to a health plan and access to health care when it's built around the patient and not just arbitrarily put out there and are an off the shelf that is not built for really anybody. It's just an off the shelf solution that doesn't necessarily help anyone per se. It might help you, but it's an anomaly. In other words, uh, because when right, it's off the shelf right. and not designed for that particular situation, then yeah, there's a chance it's going to help you, but there's also a good right. chance it's not going to be work for you at all. So yes. tell so me another more. policy solution would be, in fact, to promote primary care. 
yeah. as a specialty and get a lot more of them out there. Figure out the, some of the financials around that, which is part of why there are fewer than we need or, and historically has been sort of the one of the least preferred physician specialties. Right. But there's a policy way to do that. That's actually one of the other solutions we've talked, we've talked about as a foundation. It's also in one of my books as a prescription for what we would do to really fix the system. Yeah, exactly because right, right now, it, you're right, it's it's one of the least desired things, and it's one of the least paid. And every year, yes. every year, Medicare and Medicaid pay less, they, they pay less. Well, obviously, then your insurance carriers follow right along with that. And primary care is, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, I, I don't have a problem with this, somebody get mad at me if they're a specialist, they want to, but primary care is the most important of all of them, because if we have primary care that takes care of 80 to 90% of your daily needs and it's done properly and not what we have in our system now where your doctor only gets five to seven minutes with you, but if they get really to practice primary care to the way that they're trained, then we don't have the push up the system to specialists and to all of these different things that have to be done because it can be taken care of in that primary care setting. So that policy right there would lower the cost of healthcare in and of itself, that one policy. Right. Yes. Yeah, agreed. So, all right. So let's let's kind of go down the pathway of some of the other things that you did, some of the other uh, difficulties that you tackled across the years. So you that was one of the things that you guys were looking at in Washington State. I know that you were a member of some other organizations that were tackling this over the years too. So let get, give us a, a, a couple more of your battles. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the more the biggest political battle I ever engaged in, I was sort of surprised it worked this way out. It was my time in Arizona. I was uh, brought down to Arizona to be the, the new head of the uh, Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association. And uh, interestingly, I ended up in two major political battles. One was Arizona's quest under a Republican governor to become the first Republican-controlled state to do Medicaid expansion, which was a big part of the Affordable Care Act. And we got that through the Gray Coalition from our Republican governor to the business community and others. But it was also, it was such a battle and remains a battle uh, just for uh, ideologic and partisan reasons about whether that was the right thing to do. But from a person standpoint if are getting more people into the system in perhaps a productive way then it was one of the, the successes of my career was being able to be a big part of that effort but it sort of spun in immediately into um, this effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act in the first year of the Trump administration and the important role that uh, Senator John McCain played in that so it wasn't really what I was planning on doing with my time in Arizona uh, as the head of the hospital association became the necessary thing to do was to defend that because if it un a repeal and the, the specific proposals that were put on the table would have devastated not just Arizona, but a number of states. But for us, in terms of the economy, the healthcare is a huge piece of the success story of Arizona and doing away with uh, the Affordable Care Act and specifically the Medicaid expansion would have been devastating to that. And maybe would have spun things in an entirely different direction than we are today. Um, so that was a, a educational and I guess um, different experience. Um, most of my, but that I wasn't really able to get into the broader, how do we solve the system? Because I was trying to defend what we had. I sort of became what exactly we were talking about earlier. My job was to defend what we got, not really fix it at the time. So most of my bigger true reform efforts were earlier in my career with the Washington Health Foundation or with the Association of Washington Public Hospital Districts. That gig was really about locally based solutions. Public hospital districts are special purpose district hospitals in Washington state. And they're a big fabric in the rural parts of the state where the community essentially owned the hospitals with local people elected to the boards and with even some property tax authority, but it was about creating local solutions to healthcare problems, not just hospital care, but other services. And it was just really a essential fabric to trying to create locally based health systems rather than system based um, health systems. You're following my distinction there. 
Yeah. And that became really important work that um, really, I think, offered and still offers a blueprint for the future. But it's really not where we're headed as as recently. We've really seen much more aggregation and the movement to these larger healthcare systems, not just local to state, but now state to regional and national, and creating a question of whether at some point we're going to have like 10 systems across controlling all healthcare in the country. The work with the Association Washington Public Hospital Districts was really exactly the opposite. Let's figure out how to reinforce and give life to these local solutions where you can bring people together and find effective solutions for delivering healthcare and rationalizing health in communities. So I was really proud of that work too. Yeah, that is obviously a huge problem right now because we're seeing more and more consolidation of these and a very unfortunate part is many of your rural hospitals are being purchased by big players and eventually just yes. shutting down sometimes almost yes. immediately shutting down yes. it's the, but, sort of the plan <laughs> yeah no that, that's exactly right so let's bring everyone so yeah now i'm sorry you have a two or three hour drive but that's just the way it is and then there's the other side of it and this is another you know, I, I keep throwing these darts at insurance companies and I don't want to, but I'm, I'm throwing them because they deserve it. And that is, here's this rural hospital and they're not in network. Right. You know, uh, there's a, a, a very a particular area right now that about 80% of that area is United Healthcare, but the local, what's there, that small local health system is not in United Healthcare's network. People have to travel right. two hours to even see a doctor that is in the network. Even though there's doctors in a healthcare system right there, they are not in there. So you cannot tell right. me that's not by design. <laughs> that's right. And the the crazy thing, the the financial commitment to doing that is close to zero in the scale of these companies. It literally costs almost nothing to somehow make these local, small little rural hospitals financially whole for what they're asking for. But the worldview is that, oh no, it's part of our model of how we're going to take over healthcare and put it in our mental model. And if, right. even if it costs us like $10,000, it's more than that, but it's just, it's just micro dust in their budgets it to really say, is. we're going to have you on our system. And why don't we instead make sure your quality is up to snuff and right things like that but that's not what they're doing they're paying some we're just going to keep you out and whether you're you survive or not that's not our problem right that's not that's not our problem that's right uh, good good luck getting people right that's that that's a it's one of those issues i think especially if you're just the regular you just live in this community you just cannot wrap your mind around why can I go to that hospital right there? My brother-in-law works there. My sister works there. My whatever. There's people in this community that work there, but I can't go there. People don't understand yeah. that, right? And I mean, I've seen it yeah. multiple times where they just do it anyway. And they're like, well, I'm going to go here right. anyway. I'm not, obviously it's an emergency. The insurance is going to cover it anyway. But there's many times where they'll just pay the higher out-of-network cost just so they can go to someplace that they trust. And you know, that's a whole other thing. We're not talking about quality now because a lot of times you go, but you don't necessarily get the quality, uh, but people want to go where they know somebody. Or, you know, my mom's best friend's cousin's friend said that was a good hospital, so I'm going over there. Based on what? <laughs> yeah. Well, interesting <laughs> enough, we would get into that. And so I started uh, finding research on local rural hospital quality relative to others. And what I found was it actually tended the other way, where the quality was perceived as better by consumers. Well, there are instances certainly where there are problems, especially around specialists who were really not able to care with things that were beyond their training. Right. They called themselves right. whatever, but but the, the greater quality studies, certainly in Washington state when I were that the quality is actually superior to what they would find if you made them travel to these urban areas and go to other like facilities. Well, I, I can tell you that from experience with my family, where my dad was hospitalized uh, about 60 miles out, I live in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, about 60 miles outside of San Antonio, where he was hospitalized it was a world of difference in how nice people were and the attention they gave him and just right. no one wants to be in the hospital. Right. But it was such a different, pleasant experience as pleasant as being in the hospital can be. 
And the type of attention that he got there was so different than when he had to be in the hospital here in San Antonio. The two times in San Antonio, he's just another patient. The same guy with the same attitudes, with the same family that's there to support him. And one of them is they're just great and, and happy to be there with you and everything. And the other one, you're just another patient. They don't, you know, he wasn't asking for special treatment. He just wanted to be treated like a human. Right. Once again, patient centric care, right? I'm here. I'm your patient. I'm the reason you have a job. Is it too much for you to treat me like a person? I mean, that's That's right. That's what what a crazy concept, right? Um, But I think that backs up what you said. I think that's why a lot of people that live in a certain area really want to go to that hospital. They don't think about care. They just think about, I'm going to be treated better here because it's more going to be local people. That's right. And if anything, sometimes they want to leave because once everybody in town would know exactly that you were in there and what for. That is true too. There were some conditions and treatments where people would say, I need to get to the anonymous urban area because I don't want them to know. (laughs) That's exactly right. I've had that as well. I've had people say, Hey, I need to find a place that's over here because I can't go have whatever I'm having done here because everyone will know about it. I have had exactly that, Greg. That's funny that you mentioned that because yes, that is absolutely something that can happen. Well, let's jump back to on to Obamacare for just a minute. Uh, there's been changes as the years have gone by since you were working uh, to, to save it back uh, whenever you were in Arizona. There's been changes as the years have gone by as well to it. Uh, the expansion of the tax credits, uh, the the, the cor- correction, the fix, whatever you want to call it, or the family glitch. Uh, this has had the impact of pushing record numbers of people onto Obamacare. However, we do know that there is absolutely still a lot of thought process into getting rid of it and bringing in something else that's still there. Obviously, it never came to fruition last time. Probably won't come to fruition again because it's so embedded now. It's hard to give people something and then take it away, especially as many people are on it right now. But what are your thoughts on the program overall? And what improvements do you think could be made to it even still today? So if we didn't take it away, what policy do you believe could be implemented by the next administration or the current administration, if they gain re-election, to help improve the current system? Okay. So my conclusion on it and having advocated for it was that it was always a mixed bag in terms of what happened with it. Um, the Most of the understanding of that law is really around the coverage expansions, both the private market and the exchanges and Medicaid expansion. And um, most of the conversation gets there. And there I say, you know, my view has always been that you really can't fix the system until just about everybody is in it from a a true insurance standpoint, that if something that just a true insurable event, unanticipated catastrophic, where somehow pooling across society is is actually something that will help protect people. Well, that needs to be there, or there's always these back doors into the healthcare system through the emergency room in particular, that then just creates all these system problems because you're sort of backtracking, trying to figure out ways to make things equitable outside of the better way to do it, which is just sort of have everybody at some basic level in the system. And so it really did more than anything other than maybe Medicare uh, historically, to close the gap of the uninsured. And I said, that's generally a good thing. There's lots of problems with exactly how it happened. I've tended to sort of stay away from that other than having to defend pieces of it, like the Medicaid piece. But even Medicaid has become much more of a true health system approach than one it originally was, which was a welfare program with health benefits attached to it. The part I tried to focus in on the Affordable Care Act was there were two other sections to it as it was drafted. One was that it was supposed to reform the American healthcare system, especially around cost issues. And what it was supposed to do was take what we knew about solutions and advance them. And they got scared about that part. And so even when they did it, they backed it up into more like trial balloons of things that, uh, like group practice, things that we been doing in this country for decades 
it know a lot about and could have taken to scale and driven some more effective system-wide solutions. I mean, direct primary care might be one of those, for example. I know you've had some shows about that. There's a lot to that. And if you did it right, and if you took it to scale, you might be able to see some real major system improvements for the whole system. Well, they kind of backed up from that and made it basically grant-funded initiatives run out of an office in, in Baltimore, I believe it was. Um, so it just never really got the movement to really create the system design implementation possibilities that were possible. And we're still kind of stumbling around on the very same questions, maybe with a little more research knowledge, uh, that we were back in the 90s on these things. The other thing that was in the law was a major investment in public health and prevention, which is from a system point and a system design point of view, one of the huge weaknesses of the American healthcare system, partly related to the primary care aspect we were talking about earlier, but a real underinvestment in the notion of preventing disease and much more of an orientation in our system is to helping to try to solve problems, medical problems, once they've reached the point, in some cases of no return. I mean, the classic case of people dying or having their limbs amputated because they have diabetes when if we're able to, one, maybe diagnose it earlier, but even better, hey, maybe we could stop them from having diabetes reach its devastating consequences in the first place. Well, yeah. there's just dozens of examples of that. The notion of this public health and prevention fund was to really make a major capital and system investment in doing that. Um, the money was there originally, but since then it's largely been stolen and as we've seen, and COVID reinforced this for other weird political reasons, we've seen the almost the devolution of the American public health system, as opposed to its growth and prominence and importance in the system. I think that's those two other two pieces are the ones where I say the work is left to be done. Sure, maybe we can fix some of these coverage things and do them better, but the real system defects of the American healthcare system reside in these other two pieces of the Affordable Care Act, which now most people don't even remember being part of the act or even the conversation. Yeah, it's, it goes back, in my opinion, to a lot of these things were unintended consequences. And as you're saying, there was money for certain things that was stolen or was, you know, missed, it was allowed to go to somewhere else. But one of the things that I believe a lot of folks especially policymakers and even people who are huge proponents of it don't see that we see as brokers, as agents, as folks that help have helped folks forever get into these plans is the every single year increase in deductibles and out of pockets. Yes. Because yes. at this point, the max out of pocket and or deductible in some cases for an Obamacare plan is $9,450 a year. People in this country don't even have $400 in their bank account, much less $9,450. So what has happened in essence is even though they may have an insurance plan, they don't have any insurance, right? They don't have access to healthcare because they see that number and in many cases, because the system is so convoluted, they don't even realize that they do have preventative care, that they actually can go get that for zero cost. Or if they do, they're so afraid someone's going to find something that what am I going to do about it if they do? Or if they do go and get that and they find something, they just never get anything done. Uh, the numbers are dramatic when you see how many people just will not go get something taken care of that's been recommended because they simply don't have money on hand to go do it, even though they may have insurance. So yeah. just to, and by 2030, without any change to our current system, by 2030, the deductible on Obamacare or deductible slash out-of-pockets on Obamacare vans will be $14,100 by 2030. Yeah. yeah. You, you might as well not even have an insurance plan, right? You might yeah. as well not have anything because people don't have that much money. They're just going to hope to go get some charity care from a hospital at that point. That's right, which is harder and harder to do. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's well, a whole, other, that's a whole yes. other story, right? That's a whole other issue is. on chari charitable hospitals. That's kind of coming under the gun, yes. too, because 
it's it's hard to say we get twenty eight billion dollars in tax credits a year, but only give away sixteen billion dollars worth of health care. Well, those numbers don't g haw at all. So I need to know exactly what you're going to do to help increase that. That's a once again, that's a whole nother conversation. But that's yes. a that's an interesting dynamic here too. But when you but get whenever, me in the in the Obamacare box of coverage, the, your issue is exactly where I go which is the replacement of the uninsured with what in policy circles we at least used to call them underinsured. And the underinsurance is now dramatic, especially because of deductibles and other co-payments like coinsurance. Right. And they are really unaffordable. And if you start to see the one difference, other difference now that I'm semi-retired as I'm older, I'm actually needing a few healthcare things. So I'm starting to get the bills instead of having people send me their bills. And I'm just astonished <laughs> at the money involved that every once in a while, somebody makes a mistake and doesn't realize I'm on Medicare and they try to bill me for something. And I get it. I go like, wow, I'm not sure I could pay that. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. It, it really is astonishing how much, you know, it, it's it's different in, in cost. I had an MRI uh, this week and... Whenever I priced the MRI out, it would have been on certain health systems. My I have access to look at the data to see what it would be if I would have went across the street to the hospital instead of at this particular place where I negotiated a cash price. Across the street, this exact same MRI was forty-seven hundred dollars, right. but but I got it for nine forty. Yeah, and actually I had two different things done, but. It, my total cost would have been $4,700 at the hospital across the street at the standalone independent area with the cash negotiation. It was 940 for the exact same thing. We should not have that much disparity in the cost of healthcare. And how many people imagine if you've got a $5,000 deductible on your health plan and you've got, this is the first step in what may be a journey towards a surgery, right? It could be. I mean, you're not getting an MRI for nothing, but you get that price. You got a five thousand dollar deductible, and they say it's going to be forty seven hundred. Well, the insurance ain't paying anything. This is all going to be on you. Right. For a lot of folks, that's the end of it. They're just not going to go have it done. They're going to like, well, let me just put my arm in a sling or get me a crutch and just hop along for whatever it is and just hope that it gets better on its own. When we know it's right. not. Yeah. Or even a more dramatic example: the early diagnosis of tumor which is highly yeah. treatable when it's in a small stage, but is terminal in its later stages. That, that's right. And and that we might, the person's life is at risk, but also the system, because well, maybe once they find out they have stage four cancer, they would get coverage and we will pay for some very expensive treatment to try to save their life. And right. again, this, this is a system dysfunction. Uh, right. This is once again, earlier. the system dysfunction and a system that's not built around the patient himself, because you're you're once again preventing early detection and early something being taken care of very early in the process uh, instead of once again, waiting until, like you said, stage three, stage four. And now the cost of this treatment and the medications and everything else that's involved yes. Especially is the astronomical. Though. Yeah. All right. Well, we beat this horse to death. I don't want to talk about your books because <laughs> I am extremely intrigued in how you're weaving in solutions to our healthcare problems and a mystery, medical mysteries with, with information. So, okay. I, I, I am. I'm intrigued. I haven't read one yet, but I'm telling you what, it's definitely <laughs> on my list now. Whenever I was looking at this, I'm like, this, this is awesome. So tell me more. First of all, how did you even think of this? How did you go down this pathway? But then tell me kind of how this looks. Don't give away too much. People need to read these things, right? But just take me down this pathway. I got to know more. Yeah, so the starting point was it was 2019 when I decided to leave my Arizona job. It was just time. I've been doing it for six years. I wasn't really planning on retiring, but I was going to take some time off because I've been working since I was a little kid. And um, so I did, and I was going to get back into things, and then COVID hit. So two things come into this. One is that when I was a little boy, I always wanted to write the great American novel. And I was a little kid, I had taken a few runs at it with some, you know, really hackneyed efforts. But uh, I had started about 10 years before I took the Arizona job, thinking maybe I was going to start to career shift. And I, I wrote 70 pages of a novel. 
just to start. And since I knew healthcare, I just sort of scribbled that down. Well, I got off in my busy duties and uh, I suddenly found myself, it's COVID. Um, I don't really have any inclination to get into the system because things were so crazy then uh, that I wouldn't even know where to start, it, even being an insider. And I said, I have a lot of time on my hands. Even the golf course was closed here. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, I've got these 70 pages. I got a lot of time. I read the 70 pages. I said, hey, that's not bad. And so I said, well, what the heck? And that's what I used. A lot of my time, just the COVID shutdown was just writing a novel just for myself as a bucket list item. And so I had like you know, a bunch of pages and a book and I, I sent it to some friends, many of whom were in the healthcare world. They said, this is really good. You should publish it. And that's where it suddenly, well, maybe there's something I can do with this. So um, I started again, started to write because I knew healthcare. It was hard enough figuring out how to write a novel. I knew nothing about it. So I said, I should at least write about something that I know. I started to write some of these policy pieces, more like what we've been talking about. And I was starting to bore myself. Going like, I just don't think I can write this. And nobody's going to want to read this. I don't, I spent my career doing this. There are people that like this, but most people are kind of looking for interesting stories, especially in our digital age. So I said, well, what if I wrote just really an entertaining story that's about hospitals and healthcare and, you know, people dying and a medical detective trying to figure out why there's a whole genre of books like that. But within it, I can also embed I think I have a unique ability to take a lot of complicated health policy things and distill it into really understandable things. And I said, well, that's my new genre. And that's, I've written two so far. The first, The Theory of Irv, is much more of a historical overview of how we got where we were. And the writing convention I used to introduce the history to a, a medical detective story about what seemed to be a pandemic, but wasn't, it was actually something much more sinister the, the the convention I used was historical fiction. And so I introduced some the ancestors to the characters who were actually working on original American healthcare reform way back when. And it sort of does in stages of here's how American healthcare got so complicated through hmm. through fictional characters talking about it or engaging with it in a more interesting way than you would normally get it. The second book is The COVID Murders my attempt to get a little more provocative with my titles. And that one is really a, it's a medical detective story set in a Nashville, Nashville area around a, a patient who dies in an operating room. Then there's some questionable circumstances. My main character, the protagonist, it's a series from the first book gets called up to help out. He finds there's been other mysterious deaths um, that it happened during COVID makes COVID be one of the questions about it. But the true mystery is that is really not about COVID. It's about what else is really going on and what does that mean? Well, even as that's going on, there are ramifications to national health policy. There's a subtext of conspiracies going on, which again, give me a grounds to be able to talk about health policy and a little bit more about where it might be going now in the contemporary sense, the dangers of uh, aggregation of hospitals and more profit taking and things like that. Again, not as policy lectures, but much more, oh, there are these evil characters trying to do these really bad things. And maybe people will find that interesting to start to understand it more. Um, I'm now working on the third book. Um, my operative theory on that one is I'm going to write about a really provocative death and the expectancy of life in America. So I'm, I'm sort of on an angle of how to really make that, again, not the scary topic it sounds like when you lay it out the way I just did, but something, I would read a book about that because the characters are interesting, the story is interesting, and by the way, I'm actually learning about how it is we approach some of this, the stage four cancers, how do we deal with that in America, how do we deal with death in America, uh, spoiler alert, not so well, Um <laughs> Right. And what can we do to somehow think about that in a different way in, in our country and for the better of everybody? Well, wow, that's that's intriguing. That's uh, I have to I certainly have to give you kudos for kind of going down that pathway and uh, basically creating a genre of your own there. Uh, while you're right, there are some, say, medical mysteries. Certainly, I haven't ever heard of any that are actually putting in policy. And I guess another thing that you mentioned is looking at potential changes to policies, both in a good and negative way, right? Things that you see, uh, 
I, yes. I would imagine that in some way, shape or form, you probably touch on the prescription drug issue that we have, because that's a, yes. that's a huge yes. policy issue. I would have brought that up earlier, but man, that's just, uh, we could spend all day talking just about that and the lobby money and the, everything that's going on and, and that craziness. But I'm sure you address right. that in some way because you, you had mentioned cancer. So chemo medications, yes. I know are a huge uh, money maker yep. for a, a number so of those organizations. The, the opioid crisis comes up as a topic. Yeah. I have a oh, lot yeah. of subtopics that are about these more discrete issues of great import to millions of people. And again, try to make them digestible. So it's not a lecture about these. It's about here's how to relate them as stories that people relate to stories and how does everything that I create, including stories, all almost all of my healthcare help my main characters have healthcare things happen to them, and so the issues are described through just regular people trying to deal with the medical consequences of whatever it is, trying to navigate the system. Which that's yes. uh, there is no roadmap, unfortunately. I mean, we even in someone like yourself, someone like Matthew, you, you had mentioned that you're getting these bills now and you, you know how to handle a lot of these things, but there's still things that happen in our healthcare journeys that no matter how in depth we are, catch us off guard and we don't know what the heck to do. Yes. It's, it, it's just so convoluted that no matter how in depth you are, how, how much experience you have, there's still something that get thrown at you that you're like, well, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> now, so my wife and I, we talk about this and my 95 year old mom is living with us now. And so we have to deal with a lot of stuff with her. And so every time we go now, we come back and I, my phrase is, I got a new chapter. <laughs> yeah, you know, Something crazy happened. I'm like, somehow that's going to end up in a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I get it. I've got a couple of uh, folks that I, that I work with at times that are, they're in the same industry as I am. And I, I know them both pretty well. I'll get to see both of them uh, real soon at a conference we're going to. But both of them had some different medical things happen, one to her personally and one, the other one to her father. And both of them have been in this industry for 20 plus years and have had multiple instances of dealing with clients in the hospital and, and everything else. And both of them said, I learned so much. There's so, you know, so much that... Every single time, every time I get in or every time so, you know, something in my family happens, I learn more about this crazy system. And yes. unfortunately, it's usually nothing positive that you learn. You learn more negative things. You know, with all the things that both my mom and dad went through in 2023, I was just reminded time and time again to never take anything for granted. And that no matter, even the hospital where they treated my dad very, very well, there were still issues. There were still issues of this person not knowing what this person's doing and, you know, was even the right test being done and why is he still here and all of these other kind of things that you just, it makes no right. sense whatsoever how these things happen. Uh, so is there, is there anything we can do today, anything we can do today as a consumer Okay, as a consumer, I can't if I, if I can't adjust policy myself, and I have nothing to do but to be in the system myself. Is there anything your experience has said as an individual, as a consumer of healthcare, if you'll do this and this and this, or even if it's just this, it'll make a difference. Yes, the, the general prescription is do whatever you can to take greater control of your health care and, and find tools that might help you do it if you don't think you can do it yourself. And it really is hard for anybody to do it by themselves. So there are things called, now it's a field, patient navigators, people who yep. will help. Brokers actually can do this function. People who will be your ally in somehow trying to navigate the system and exert more control over what's going on. So it's not just happening to you, you're trying to interface with it. Uh, our foundation, which is not really active other than being basically it's where revenues go for my book sales. So we maybe we'll get money in the future at some point. We still have a whole series of what we called health home tools, which are forms that people can download and are just tools to help you try to take greater control over the experience. I'll give you one fast example. It's uh, for what if, if you go see a primary care physician and you're concerned that 
you're not going to be, they're not going to deal with you as a, they're so busy putting in their computer things in their seven minutes that the fact that you have, I'll use an example of a, a sexually transmitted disease that you're embarrassed about talking about, that you end up having the seven minutes go by and you haven't even mentioned it. Well, we have a simple form. It's one page. You just sort of fill it out with my expectations from this office visit are one, two, three. And so if you put it down there and you give it to them and say, here's what I'm trying to get out of this visit. And, you know, number one is I've got this sexually transmitted disease and I need help. That You've recreated a different relationship than the relationship the physician typically has, especially in some of these systems where at seven minutes and my job is to get you out of here as fast as possible. You've taken control over the situation. So that premise is sort of the what are all our tools were based on as a foundation when we developed them. That by having these things, you help people be empowered to take greater control over their healthcare and their interactions with the healthcare system. I think there's other things out there. It's finding things like that. And if it's just your you you have a um, a nephew who is an emergency room physician, use that. Find practical ways to just not be a victim in the system and exert yourself because ultimately you matter but it's and you just have to try to force the system to recognize you hard as it might be yeah there's there's no doubt about it if if they're not gonna treat if if the system itself is not going to be patient-centric force it to be in your case that's yes. that's very very good advice there because it, it we really preach to people all the time you've got to be your own advocate you've got to be you've yes. got to be you've got yes. to be you've got yes. to be if you are trusting an insurance company or you're trusting the hospital or you're trusting them to be your advocate you are making a huge mistake okay they're for-profit institutions that are going to do what's in their best interest not yours uh, as you mentioned there are third-party advocacies and many of them are non-profit many health plans even some of the, the big ones, they have advocates on staff to help you through that process that they have to pay, but that are not beholden to them. Uh, some of them actually have a third party company that are those navigators, nurse navigators, uh, medical utilization management companies, these different groups that will help navigate you through the system. Uh, it, it's very difficult if people, even the the someone who's been in through this a whole lot understands that it's very difficult to go out and get data on cost. And if you do, do you get anything on quality? Because in, in the U.S. health system, cost and quality do not correlate. And many times the higher cost is lower quality. And you're going to get better quality whenever you go to some place that has a lot less administration and a lot less functionality, a lot more healthcare is consumed than 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 the administration of healthcare, and uh, that's what we see a lot of times in larger hospitals. Is a lot of administration right. and not a lot of healthcare actually provided. Uh, right. So, yeah. Exactly. Advocacy. And even on things as consequential as end of life, where we yeah. know from studies that almost everybody wants to die in their home. But instead, if they end up just letting the system take over, the system's orientation is to keep you in the hospital and doing things to you. And most people don't want that, but it's usually right. what happens still. Despite yeah. all efforts, even on the part of hospitals to break that model, it's really resilient. You need to somehow get in there and figure out a way out of that if that's not what you want. If it is, God bless you. But if it's not, then you got to figure out how to make sure that's not where you end up in your last days. Right. Yeah, it, you know, they when they say we'll make them as comfortable as possible, that's home. Comfortable as possible is home. Thank you very much. And and I think most people would believe that way, but you're right. Sometimes they never even get that opportunity or the hospital does yes. things to keep them there. Yes. Get get that bill up usually, not even sometimes, usually that's where it ends up. I was trying to be nice, but yes, usually it does work out that way. Um you you, you typically you got to raise a pretty big fuss before they'll let you go home. <laughs> uh, and of course, some sometimes they may get, let you leave the hospital with all they do is they send you to another facility and you still don't get to go home. Right, right, exactly, yes. That just happens to be in the same system as that hospital. <laughs> could be, or some other financial relationship. <laughs> just taking the money out of the left pocket and putting it in the right pocket well yeah. 
Well, hey, I really appreciate you sharing all this information with us. Do you have any final thoughts? I, I'm going to plug your books again, too. I want you to do that as well. And I also want you to tell folks where they can go and get those books. But I also want to get your final thoughts on these on this uh, particular subject. Yeah, I think it's uh, shows like yours are what are helping to change the dynamics in the American healthcare system. And that I just encourage people to get educated, learn what you can. If it's from my books, great. If it's another source, great. But they just have to empower themselves with information and then ideally action that will somehow break the long cycle that we've been on unintentionally, I believe, as a country. But it's where we find ourselves. And we're, we're the ones that are going to have to find the fix because, as we talked about even before we came on the show, it's it's not going to happen on its own. Right. So be, be a part of the change uh, for yourself and your family and your loved ones. And uh, it'll be a good thing for America, too. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So you have got the theory of Irv and the COVID murders. Where can folks get a hold of those books? Yeah. So my books are available on Amazon exclusively at this point as a, okay. a beginning author. And you can find them there. I've got an author page. Just plug my name into Amazon and the author page will show up and you'll see the reviews. Uh, asked me earlier, uh, the uh, one kind reviewer said they were kind of like a John Grisham medical books. And he writes books that are legal thrillers and usually have some commentary about the legal system or something else. Right. I thought that was kind to them, but I also thought it was kind of, it was accurate in what I was trying to do. Awesome. Um, they've been well rated. I've actually done pretty well with them. We're not making significant amounts of money, but you know, you got to publish a lot to get there. And again, all the proceeds to the revenues of the books don't go to me. They go to the Washington Health Foundation with the dream that we can sort of resurrect what we were doing before for 20 years in Washington state. Now with the national uh, point of view to make American healthcare and health better. All right. Good deal. All right, folks. That is Greg Vigdor. That's V I G D O R. You can find those books out at amazon.com. Uh, you do have that author page so they can go out there and learn more about those books. Once again, uh, do you have an, uh, did you say you had a name for the upcoming book already? The operative title right now is death panels. Death panels. In allusion to that phrase from the Affordable Care Act warriors. <laughs> awesome. Greg, thank you so very much for being with us. I sure appreciate your time. Uh, keep on fighting the good fight, buddy. And keep on pouring those books out, yeah. man. I am going to go and get my copies of them. I've got <laughs> uh, a flight coming up here. It's going to be about an eight-hour flight uh, each direction. So that'll give me a time to dig into them things, man. I really appreciate your time, <laughs> buddy. You uh, keep up the good fight, and we'll catch you again. Yeah, enjoyed it. You too. All right. Okay, folks. Thanks a lot for joining with us on this episode of the Health and Well Power Hour. I hope you got a lot out of it. Don't forget that every last Tuesday of the month, you can catch us on LinkedIn Live Audio Room. The Why Does Healthcare Suck series will be up and at them again. The last episode, we talked about why employers are still dragging their feet and not making the change to alternative funded health plans that are Hey, imagine this, patient-centric. Uh, when we build them away from your big buca carriers, we're going to build them around the actual employees and provide the benefits that the employer actually wants at a better cost, saving about $2,000 per employee per year for that employer, but providing better superior coverage and care. Also, if you want to sign up for the Health and Wealth Power Hour to come right to your inbox every single week you can go to hwpowerhour.com and subscribe right there or just keep listening on apple spotify or wherever wherever you consume your podcast thanks again for joining with us we'll catch you next time on the health and well power we are out